Good morning, guys. Thanks for being here today. Those of you who joined us online from wherever you are, we're so glad that you're with us. And actually, uh, we have good news and bad news. The bad news is we had our last outdoor service for at least several months this morning. It went awesome, by the way, because the weather was perfect and I only sweated a little bit. Here's the good news. The good news is, God willing, next week we resume a normal schedule. So that means that if you're uh, online, we want you to stay online if that's what, uh, if that's what you need to do for your health. But we do want to ask you to do something. If you're online, we want to ask you to join it as a community. Don't just be a viewer. So John Magnus, I want to give you a lot of op options for how you can join as a community. For those of you who are interested in coming back, at 8 o'clock we have a mass required service in stores. We have our Bible class program at East Campus that's resuming this next week on the 11th. And then at 10.30 a mask optional service. And I'm just so excited that we, we will taste something a little more normal, God willing, starting on November, excuse me, October the 11th next week. I love you guys. I'm so glad to be with you. I think God selected the text today, which is Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. You'll see why God probably selected this text, because it's very appropriate for where we find ourselves here in October of 2020 the most um, adventurous year we've had probably in the 21st century. So one time, I, uh, I love Asian food, and one time I got a, um, well, I like, you know, I like everybody else, I like looking at the fortune cookies. In fact, I'd go to an Asian restaurant just to get the fortune cookie. I opened one up and it said this. This is probably the funniest one I ever got. You will be hungry again within an hour. And it turns out that was true. So, but it got me started thinking about funny fortune cookie sayings. So I went online because, as you know, if you go on the internet, you get truth. And I found all sorts of funny fortune cookie sayings. And let me just share with you a few of them that people evidently have actually gotten. Here's one. Help, I'm being held prisoner in the kitchen. Here's one. Your pet is planning to eat you. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Here's one that a husband got. It said, this week, email someone who has withdrawn from you. The wife got one that said, expect an email this week. Here's one. You're about to become $12.95 poorer. And then my last one. This one actually I did get. This is my favorite. And this one I got. I still remember the restaurant I was in. It was about almost 20 years ago I got this one. A giant oak tree is nothing more than a little nut that stood its ground. I like that one. Because I think to some extent it describes every church I've ever worked for. That in a lot of ways there's no real reason that God would have called us, some of us being the nuts we are, that God would have called us and said, I'm giving you the calling. I'm giving you the task. You get the mission of becoming a giant oak tree here in Murfreesboro, in the state of Tennessee, across the country, for those of you in Dallas, Texas, those of you down in Tampa, Florida, that, that God would say, you're my chosen vessel to become the full image of Jesus Christ and present him to the whole world. But that's exactly what he did. He called us little acorns. And he said, I'll make out of you a mature oak tree. And in order for us to become fully mature, in order to present to the whole world the fullness of Jesus Christ, it is essential that we work together. We have to be united. And that's actually what this text is about. And I said I think God uh, picked this text because in my 59 years of living, 
I did live through the Vietnam War, but I don't remember a whole lot from it. I just remember news reports and my dad's anxiety when he would watch the news. But in my 59 years now of living, these are the most divided days I ever remember. Americans are divided, it appears to me, in all sorts of ways, racial ways, uh, along partisan lines. Our uh, our divisions are exasperated by social media uh, where not only do we hold different positions, but sometimes we go online and we say terrible things about one another. We rant and we scream about each other in social media on Twitter or Facebook or whatnot. And it seems to me that the pandemic has made it even worse. Being holed up, as many of us have, some have lost their jobs. Moms having to, you know, uh, by the way, women have lost their jobs at a much, or had to quit their jobs at a much higher rate than men. You know why, don't you? Because so many women have had to stay home because their kids couldn't go to school. It's been a real hardship on women. Uh, It's on all of us, but maybe especially on women. And being home every day with the kids, here's a mom who has to take care of the kids. She has to be partly their teacher. She still has to do all the things she has to do. And now there's the economic hardship that goes with it. In some cases, husbands and wives are both working at home and they like each other, but not that much. And they discover these are very difficult times. What I'm suggesting is the text that's written here on how we build unified relationships, I think was chosen by God because this is an important time to hear this message. It's a very important time. I'm going to talk about the goal of this text, which is that God has called us to be the mature body of Christ. In order for that to happen, you have to make a commitment to the body. You have to do it. So this is not a sermon on unity. That's theoretical. Actually, a sermon on unity, in my opinion, is a waste of your precious time. This is a text on you making a commitment to unity. That's not a waste of your time. Because it's not theoretical. God doesn't just ask us to think about unity. He asks us to commit to it. He asks us to pick up our hands, take up a shovel, and start working for the good, the common cause of Christ. This text, Ephesians chapter 4, culminates in verse 13 where Paul makes the case that God's intention is that we will be unified, but it's unity with a purpose. In fact, I want to say that in a lot of ways, unity can be a bad thing if it doesn't have a purpose. Our purpose is to attain unity in a mature reflection of Jesus. When I first started working on this sermon, my original plan was to preach on maturity, Christian maturity, because it's the theme of the text. We get maturity, but then I just, it's like God kept saying, no, 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 David, maturity is the goal, but you need to talk about the method, and the method is unity. By unity, we become mature. But I did all this work on maturity, and I have to share a little bit with you because, um, well, because it's in the text, and I'm stirred by it. I was just thinking, what is maturity anyway? Now, I began to just sort of do some research on what we mean when we say someone is mature. Can I just read to you a few things that are indicators of maturity? This is just intended to help you. So wherever you are in your journey, by the way, if you're a new Christian, you shouldn't be mature. We're not expecting you to be mature. If you're in the first grade, nobody's asking you to be mature in the first grade. Now, it's a little problematic if you've been in the first grade 12 years in a row. That's when there's a problem. It's when you're not maturing. So just listen to some traits of a mature person. Mature people have highs and lows in their lives, but the highs and the lows don't mess them up. 
Mature people trust that God will work it out. So mature people tend to be patient people. Impatient people generally struggle with maturity. Mature people are more interested in doing the right thing than they are in winning an argument. This is true in a marriage. If you argue because you want to win an argument, you're probably not a very mature person because mature people ask the question, what's the right thing to do? They don't ask the question, how can I win this argument? Mature people listen genuinely. Mature people don't need the credit for things. A mature person might do all sorts of services, might be very generous, might help a lot of people, and they don't care if you give them credit or not because they didn't do it for credit. They did it because it's the right thing to do. That's how mature people think. If you're always in need of credit for something, you know, you, if you don't get told thank you, you're never going to do it again, or they don't acknowledge your gift, or that kind of language, you're not evil, but you're probably not very mature. I'm trying to set a benchmark, something for you to aim for. I want to get to the point where I don't need you to say thank you. I do it because it's the right thing. Mature people are drama-free people. That's a big one. I want to connect to drama because drama is a big issue in uh, 21st century North America. I want to make sure you understand drama is an indication of insecurity, low self-esteem or insecurity. I'll use the word insecurity. Because when we act out in dramatic ways, what we're saying is, I need somebody to acknowledge me. I've known ministers who've gone into ministry because they have very little self-esteem. They were hoping that ministry would give them self-esteem. They get a microphone. The world gets to listen to them. They feel like they're suddenly important. But in a lot of cases, those same ministers will constantly create drama in a church so they can go in and rescue the situation because it makes them feel important. If you like a lot of drama, you're probably not a very mature person. Let me keep going. Just one or two more. Mature people are not afraid of the truth, even when it hurts. They want to know the truth. Immature people, they hope you don't tell them the truth because sometimes the truth is not pleasant. And mature people take joy just out of daily living. So I worked on this, and I started every time I, like I said, I spent the first half of the week, this was the angle I wanted to develop in this sermon. And every time I would sit down and work on it, I, I couldn't help but think this. This is a description of Tom and Ann Beatty. By the way, I called Ann yesterday, and Ann, I, I hope you're watching. I called Ann yesterday just to say, I just, I'm not asking your permission, but I'm, i got to use you as an illustration. Because when I think of the most mature people I've ever known, it's been Tom and Ann Beatty. Tom served as an elder at North Boulevard until he passed away a couple of years ago of cancer. Tom and Ann, in so many ways, built North Boulevard. So the good news is, I'm not, it's not, is that a lot of you don't know them. I say that's good news because it means we've grown a whole lot, and that's an honor to them. It's also sad because I'm going to tell you, when I just described what maturity looked like, it was a picture of Tom Beatty. Um, had highs and lows in his life. Tom and Ann have gone through, yeah, you can clap, absolutely. They've gone through those of us who know them know that they've gone through all sorts of difficulties in life, some very intensely personal and painful things. And, and they just rode the storm out like mature people do. Oh, my goodness, was Tom Beatty into drama? Never into drama. Uh, did, did, how many buildings are named after Tom and Ann Beatty? Like, you're going to have to force it to happen because they were never in it for credit. 
They're in it because it's the right thing. I said this about Tom at his funeral. I said, if you drop Tom Beatty in the middle of a field where there was nothing that he could see in any direction, the first question Tom Beatty would ask is, what is the right thing to do? That would be his first question. That's what a mature man does. I'm just suggesting that in so many ways, God has blessed us as a church by putting mature people in our lives. So maturity is the goal of Ephesians chapter 4. Maturity is the goal. But we cannot attain maturity unless we're unified. By the way, we'll get to the text. I'm going to move through the text quickly. I don't want to panic you and make you think, man, you haven't even got to the text yet. I'm going to go quickly to the text, but I want to set it up. That maturity of Jesus Christ, looking like Jesus, that's the goal. But the way we get there in this text is through unity. We have to be unified or we'll never get there. I'll show you in a minute. But I do want to return to this idea. Unity for its own sake is actually sometimes a very dangerous thing. There's a series of posters that I don't recommend, but I have to show you one of them. Demotivational posters in which they sort of make fun of motivational posters. This one caught my attention some years back. It shows a snowball gaining momentum, about to become an avalanche. And underneath it says, a few harmless flakes working together can unleash an avalanche of destruction. The truth is, unity can actually be very destructive. I remind you that in 1938, the German people were unified behind the Nazi party. Unity for the sake of unity sometimes is a dangerous thing. I really don't advocate it. I'd rather have a divided country than to have a country united around the wrong cause. In that sense, when Congress is, the, is, is divided, I'd re- I like that. That's good news for me because if they're going to unite around the wrong cause, that's bad news. So we're not just advocating unity, we're advocating unity for the right reason. And the unity that's advocated in this text is a unity necessary for us to become the full measure, the maturest version of Jesus that's possible. Without unity, we can't do it. Now I have to say one or two other things about this before we move on, before we get to the text. Let me say this, unity is not just a theoretical issue. That's why I said I don't want to preach a sermon on unity. I want to preach a sermon on how you should become united. It's about us. It's about what we do. It's not a theory. If it's just a theory, change the channels. I guarantee you there's something better on TV right now. If it's just a theory, if we're just talking about some lofty ideal, some virtuous concept that floats around out there in the platonic world, who cares? I don't even care. This is about whether or not I make a decision to commit to the body of Christ, whether you do that or not. It's where the rubber meets the road that matters. If you're not going to make a commitment to unity, you're wasting your time this morning. You just really are. And that's why in a large church, that's why we have promoted things. I don't like doing commercials. I don't like feeling like I'm doing a commercial. But this is not a commercial. Here's the deal. If you don't make a flesh and blood commitment to the people of God, we are not united. So in a large church, we have been promoting think small. You have to be in a small group. Look, the pandemic, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe it's going to ease up. Maybe in a few months we have a vaccination. Maybe we're all back together by Easter. I don't know. But here's what I can tell you. One blessing I know God wants us to get out of this is the blessing of strong, thriving small groups. If you're not committed to a small group, there's only so much we can do for you. Unity means you have to get in the lives of real flesh and blood people who are standing there in front of you. Look, I just want you to know I am fully united with the people of Nebraska. 
You know why? Because I don't know any of them. It's so easy to be united when it's just a theory. Let me tell you what's hard. It's hard to be united when we're actually sitting together, wrestling with real life problems. That's what we've been called to. Next week, God willing, we want to relaunch small groups. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go online and join a small group. If you haven't done it, we're just asking you to make a six-week commitment. Six weeks. Just try for six weeks. Find a small group. By the way, you can email Trish Waldron. You can go online. You'll see it out there. There's a place. Just give us six weeks. Commit to the group for six weeks. Use the series we've produced, or you don't have to. I don't care. But we produce a series we thought would be fun for you. It's a little edgy. It's got a lot of kind of some, it's just got a lot of stuff in it. And then at the end of the six weeks, evaluate. Is this something I want to keep doing? If you don't want to keep doing it, stop. I won't bother you again for another year. But half of you will say, I should have been doing this all along. You'll discover a spiritual family in a small group. I'm laying the challenge out there to you. Go online and join a small group. Next week, we start this re-energized small group ministry. Let's get at least that blessing out of the pandemic. Don't deny the one blessing I think God's trying to give us. Okay. So again, I'm just trying to encourage us to recognize this is not a theoretical discussion about unity. This is a real life and blood discussion about you making a commitment to be one with your church. Do you get the difference? One last thing. Before we get to the text, which we'll move through quickly, we got out early at first service, so there you go, guarantee of good things to come. Another thing you'll notice in this text in just a few minutes is that Paul deals with heresy. Paul says that unity in Christ is the best inoculation against heresy. The word heresy comes from a Greek word that means to teach a different gospel. I do think there are a lot of heresies in North America right now, and we must guard ourselves against them. I'll talk about it just a little bit more in a moment, but I want to make sure you know that we're relaunching our School of Christian Thought after the pandemic with Elisa Childers, who's a friend of mine. If, you, if, you were, uh, if you're a little bit older and you're a female, you perhaps remember the girl group, the, the Christian uh, band Zoe Girl. Elisa was the lead singer for Zoe Girl, and she is now a fantastic Christian apologist for the real thing for the gospel truth, for what's really found in Scripture. Elisa will be here, God willing, in person, October 26th, mask optional, come. We'll have an online version as well, so you can watch it online. Elisa's book is about to come out, Another Gospel. She's a very winsome presenter. She's a very brilliant person. And it fits into this lesson because Paul says, if you don't unite, you're going to fall for heresy. Okay. Now we have to look at our text, and I want you to see in our text that Paul answers the question, how do you commit to the unity of this congregation? So let's get to our question. We'll move quickly. Let's get to our question. So let me, before we get to our question, let me ask you, make sure that you understand the question I'm not asking. I'm not asking the question, what is unity? I don't care. Really, do you care? Like if it's not about you and what you do, you are wasting your time. The lake's a lot better than this. This sermon is about you making a decision to commit to the unity of your church home. If you're not interested in doing that, get your cell phone out and get Angry Birds out and have a little fun till the Lord's Supper comes around. 
Because this sermon is about you making a commitment to the people of God. And if you're not interested in that, then I don't know that I can give you a whole lot in this lesson. This is what Paul's concerned with. Notice that Paul uses the language of you. You do this. He's not talking about the lofty ideals of a unified congregation. He's talking about you making a commitment. So what must I do? Let's start here. Verse 1, Ephesians 4, where Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The very first thing that Paul says, treat one another right. We will never be unified if we don't treat each other with gentility, humility, patience, and forbearance. We can't be united. This is important because Paul's about to talk about doctrines that should unite us. But before he even talks about common beliefs and common doctrines, he wants us to know you can have all the common doctrines in the world, but if you don't have the right attitude, you wasted your time. Some of you have spent your lives running from legalistic churches that burned you as a child. And in some cases, not all, but in some cases, these legalistic churches, they had the right doctrine, but they had such an acidic, such an angry disposition that it didn't matter. You didn't want to be part of it anymore. The secret to unity begins when I decide I'm going to be a gentle person with you. And oh my goodness, do we need that now? I just saw a tweet the other day, a leader, a leader in America tweeted out she hopes President Trump dies of coronavirus. I don't care what your politics are, really seriously, can't we be better than that? Can't we as the people of God be more gentle with one another than that? Ask yourself, so we have Democrats at North Boulevard, we have Republicans, we have African Americans, we have whites, we have Latinos, we have Asians. Can't we treat one another with gentility and humility? Can't we be patient with one another? We're not all going to agree. I got news for you. You don't even agree with you. Half the time you disagree with what you believed last year. Can't we be gentle with each other? Can't we say, I see your point of view, I disagree, without it having to be some sort of apocalypse where the whole world melts down? And when we post things online, can't we post them in the hope and the joy of the Lord instead of angry rants at each other? I want to be careful what I say in this next illustration, but man, I don't even know what to say. I'm going to be so careful I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I know of a church somewhere where recently a couple renounced a lifestyle that was sinful. It was a very difficult thing for them to do. I'm being so general. I hope you don't know what I'm talking about. It was very difficult for them to do. I spoke with their senior minister, their pastor about it. I said, oh my goodness, I've heard this. He said, yeah. He said, look, we loved on them and loved on them and loved on them and love won the day. Look, if we want to win, if you want to win the Democrats to your position or you want to win the Republicans to your position, try loving them. Try reminding the other party or whoever it is, try reminding them that, hey, we've got something even better than partisan politics. We got Jesus Christ. Try to love them. Remember, they have a soul in the image of Jesus Christ. If you will love your enemy, what does Jesus say about it? If you will love your enemy, he says, now you're sons of your Father in heaven. 
Pagans love, they hate their enemies. The sons of the Father in heaven, they love their enemies. If we will treat one another with gentility, if we'll practice some humility, even if the world doesn't come to God, they will at least see who Jesus is. And they'll have a fair chance at rejecting him then. And when you argue with one another, because you will, if you're not arguing with somebody, it's because you don't know them. Like I say, I don't ever argue with people in Nebraska. I don't know them. Last time I was in Nebraska, I had a vacation in Nebraska some years ago, and it just dawned on me, I'm the only guy that I know of who's having a Nebraska vacation. Um, if you're from Nebraska, I'm sorry for that. But I'm just saying, like, if you don't know anybody, of course you're not going to argue. But if you commit to loving the body of Christ, you're going to argue with people. You're just going to. You're not always going to agree. When you have a conflict, do this. Call them up on the phone and say to them, hey, I didn't like the way that conversation went. As brother and sister in Christ, can we sit down and talk about this? Oh, my goodness, when you do that, as, as the Bible says, you cover over a multitude of sins. It's like making up after you had a marriage fight. It's like that's, it almost makes the fight worth it. In that sense, what the Bible teaches us is when we don't get along, make it right with each other. You're not always going to get along, but make it right with each other. Can we talk with one another? I'm in a group right now. Everything in the group is confidential, so I can't tell you anything about the group except this. It's a group, half of us are white, half, of, half in the group are African-American. We're working through this book by uh, Latasha Morrison called Be the Bridge. The concept is to get whites and blacks in the same room and to listen to one another and in the name of Jesus, build some bridges. I'm going to say we the church are the only hope the world has here. And as we have been meeting with one another, again, I can't tell you anything that's happening. I, I wouldn't betray the group like that, but I will say this. It would be so healthy if all of us did this. Because here's what happens. A lot of whites are afraid to say anything about race right now because we're afraid we'll say the wrong thing. You, you, if you, those of you who are white, you know what I'm talking about. You're afraid you'll say the wrong thing, so you don't say anything. So if you're African-American, what do you hear coming out of the bowels of whites? Nothing total silence. And you're thinking, don't they see what's happening? We've tried to tell them. They're not hearing us. They don't care. And, and again, let me just say, so many of us who are white really still have no idea what it's like to be black in America. And when we sit down with one another and say, can we open up in the name of Jesus, listen to one another, stand united with one another, hear the hurt that's in the souls of one another, that's the only way we're going to get through this, my friends. And this is what Paul starts with. You want unity. You want unity. It's not just doctrinal uniformity. You want unity. It starts when you are humble, when you are gentle, when you are willing to forgive, be patient, and love on one another. Okay, I said I'm going to go fast. Let's keep going. The second thing Paul argues is, as a prisoner of the Lord, uh, let's go on to the next one. There's one body, he says, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope. When you are called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The so second thing Paul says, if we're going to be united, I, I have to move quickly now, we have to confess to one another the non-negotiables of Scripture. So I want to make sure you understand there are some doctrines that when you become a Christian, you embrace those doctrines whether you understand them or not. It's like marriage. When you say I do in marriage, what you're saying is I plan to stay with you even though I don't always understand you. It's a confession. It's not a negotiation. Now I want to make sure you understand this. The Christian religion is not open for negotiation. 
If you don't like it, you got to go find another religion. Well, you, are, you don't have a private contract with God that says you can write the religion any way you want to. It is not a negotiable religion. We confess what the Bible teaches us even when we don't fully understand it. You'll never fully understand it. You think you can understand the mysteries of a triune God? Who can? Only He. But I do also want you to note this. There are only seven non-negotiables in this text. Not 70, not 700, and not 7,777. That is, when Paul says there are some non-negotiables of the Christian faith, he doesn't mention all the stuff we like to argue over. He says one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. He doesn't talk about what kind of music you have. That's not one of the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. He doesn't talk about hand clapping versus no hand clapping, star bellies versus no star bellies, face mask versus no face mask. Those don't make it on the essential list. So we don't have to argue over those. We just want to stand on the essential core Christian doctrine. And I want to say one of the great things about North Boulevard, for the almost 30 years that I've had some kind of either friendship or worked here, you guys have done a fantastic job of holding the center and not necessarily worrying over all the fringe issues. There haven't been that many fights. Even the mask, no mask thing, which is so politicized right now. I know churches that are splitting over masks. Can you believe that? What does that say to the world? We're going to split over masks? Really? The people of God are? By the way, I credit people like Tom and Ann Beatty for that. Because they refused to fight over things that weren't essential. Let's just pick our fights carefully. Let me give you one quick illustration on that as well. So my wife's father went to the University of Auburn, Auburn University. My wife's mother went to the University of Alabama, and they married so that can happen. And every day, a year when the Iron Bowl rolled around, it was, you know, Tom's funny and it's Tom's really not so funny <laughs> in the Harrison house. If you watch the Iron Bowl, which, Iron Bowl, which I enjoy doing every year, but I, I would have to do even if I didn't enjoy it because I'm married to an Auburn fan. Here's what you see. Somebody say Roll Tide. Did I just hear Roll Tide out there? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, after last night, I'm not sure Auburn has much hope this year um, in the Iron Bowl. Look, so here's what I'll say. They act as though they hate one another's guts. You know, they destroy each other's campuses. <laughs> They're like, they scream at each other and boo at each other, hiss at each other. They, act, they live just, what are they, 70 miles apart? I don't know how far it is, 100 miles to my nose. They're not very far apart. They act like they hate each other's guts. But watch this. Halftime will roll around in the Iron Bowl, and some ministry or some service, some nonprofit will bring a child out who's had leukemia and was healed because of the generosity of people such as those fans. And have you noticed, all of a sudden, Alabama and Auburn fans will cheer together. Because that which unites them is bigger than that which divided them. They could unite around that child because now something more important than football is on the field. They could unite about the life that this child has received because they recognize our problems aren't that big. When Paul sets forth these seven points of unity, he's reminding you, your differences, your racial differences, your political differences, your anger with your husband or your wife because you've been locked in the same house for seven months, it's not as big as the thing that unites you. These core truths about who our God is and what he did for us. So we remind ourselves, first, we treat one another right. Second, we confess the major doctrines of the Christian faith. And then 
last, looks like I left out my last point. We serve one another with the gifts God has given us. That's what it is. I'll read it to you. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, so here's what Paul's going to argue. This is, it's a nuanced argument. He opens up by saying we have to be united or we can't be mature. And then he acknowledges, but that doesn't mean we're uniform. There's a difference between unity and uniformity, right? Uniformity is when everybody's exactly alike. Unity is when a lot of different things come together. He argues for unity in the text, not uniformity. So he says, you're going to be different, but difference good. It comes together to build a whole person. Be thankful that your whole body isn't just a bunch of hands because then you wouldn't have an eyeball. So here's what he says. He quotes from Psalm 68, by the way. That's what he's doing. It's, it's, a, it's a really fantastic little thing that Paul always does with Scripture. He just has fun with Scripture. So Psalm 68, the psalmist is praising God who goes out into battle and wins every battle and brings home the spoils of war. That's the quote. Paul takes that text and says, yeah, that's what he did. He brought home the spoils of war, and now he gives them to you as gifts. So you're getting the spoils of war. Here's how he puts it. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, that is, this is why Psalm 68 says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What to, then Paul can't help himself now. He says, well, Jesus goes up to heaven, and that means he had to come down first. So he just wants to point out that the same guy that went up is the guy that came down, Jesus. What does it mean he ascended? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended, that is Jesus who came to earth, is the same guy who ascended higher than the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service. Let me just pause, make a quick comment. The first two of these, these the apostles and the prophets, they are the foundation. Paul has already said that in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We, they are the foundation of the church. Their writings constitute the Bible. The apostles and the prophets give us the scripture. So whatever else we get has to be built upon the teachings of scripture. Scripture is always the final answer. Nobody has any authority above the Scripture. But then he lists three other works or offices, if you will. The evangelist, we say preacher. It's essentially the same term. The pastor, in, Bible, in the Bible, pastors generally are elders, not preachers. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the elders in the church at Ephesus, you are the pastors of God's flock. And the teachers, these are just people who are capable of explaining what the text means. So Paul says they're not all the same gift, but they work together to make sure the whole body is fully equipped. And so he says, works of service, so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Him. So the third thing you do, serve with the gift God has given you. You see that? First, you treat one another right. Second, you confess the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. And third, you treat, excuse me, you serve each other with the gifts God has given you. I just want to say one more thing about that, and then I'm going to, I'm going to stop. The reason God gave you the gift he gave you is so that you could serve others. That's a real important point. God doesn't give us our gifts so we can squander them on ourselves. He gives us our gifts so that we can come together and form a whole body. Maybe your gift is generosity. God gave you money so you could be generous. If you spend it all on yourself, you've wasted the gift God gave you. Maybe your gift is leadership. God gave it to you so that you could help others. Maybe your gift is encouragement. 
Paul lists a, a, three different texts in the Bible. Paul lists gifts. This is one of them where he lists the five gifts. He lists them also in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12. He says that there's a gift of encouragement. It's a powerful gift. If God gave you the gift of encouragement, by all means, go out there and, and encourage. And I'll just say it takes all these parts to make the body function. You know, it takes feet, it takes hands, it takes bellies, it takes ears, it takes hair, it takes all of it for the body to function. Let me just share one little um, bit with you. So I was asked the question, why is it that we um, are waiting to the 11th to go back to normal? Why not the 4th? And it's because for many people here in Rutherford County, this is the beginning of fall break, and usually a lot of our folks travel. And we were not sure we could pull off our services on the 4th because we need so many volunteers and so many of you serve. That's my point is how many of you serve. I said this at first service. Someone said, I think you might have exaggerated. I'm not exaggerating. You know how many volunteers it takes to pull off Sunday services at North Boulevard? Just take a guess. How many, how many volunteers are involved? We run nine services on the weekend at five different campuses. We're online, we have teachers, we have Bible classes. It takes 250 people to pull it off every Sunday. 250 people to pull it off. Those are folks like you who have stepped up to the plate and said, I'll serve. I'll be part of this. Here's what I want you to see. At the end of the day, we have been called by God to be the full measure of Jesus for the world. Here's how he puts it. If we do these things, we will no longer be tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together with every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I'm asking you to do this. The, the, God is calling you to do this. Treat one another gently. Make a resolution to confess the major creeds of the Christian faith and don't negotiate them. And then take whatever gift God has given you and use it for the people of God to serve. When we do this, we attain the maturity that God expected of us. When we attain maturity, let me tell you what happens. Our relationships flourish. Mature people have great relationships. When we attain to maturity, we discover our mission and it gives us peace. When we attain the maturity that God wants for us, our addictions are healed. A mature church can change the world. And in order to attain that maturity you got to make a commitment. So that's what we're calling you to do. Let's unite my brothers and sisters and be the full people of God so we can fully show the world who Jesus is. We'll stand up at this service. You do what you need to do at home, and let's sing about it now.